Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I'm excited to talk to class of 2012's Betsy Spear, business operations computer scientist and stand-up comedian. Betsy will share with us how she blazed an international trail from WeGo to Syracuse, to South Korea, and now Ireland in pursuit of her career. And along the way, honed her comedic wit to become a mainstay on the Irish stand-up comedy circuit. Be sure to check out the episode page to find links to follow Betsy's stand-up. Joining us from the class of 2012 is Betsy Spear. Betsy, what do you do? Hey there, Brian. Well, I am currently, I'm a biz ops engineer for a mural, and I'm also a stand-up comedian at night. Um, where did you go after West Chicago? So when I graduated, I immediately went to Syracuse University in upstate New York, and I was originally enrolled in their environmental engineering program, but I realized I was not, I didn't have the brain for chemistry. It's a very chemistry-heavy degree. So I switched to computer science and I uh, stuck in that field and I graduated from Syracuse in 2016 with a comp sci degree. And I had also spent one year in South Korea um, at Korea University, also pronounced Koryo de Hakyo. That's the proper pronunciation. And I did that for my sophomore year. So let's talk about um, the actual program of computing, computer science and computer engineering. Did you have a, a type of capstone project that you had to work on uh, upon graduation? I would say, I know some universities do that. Syracuse, let me think, kind of not, not so much. I, I think with Syracuse, it was very theoretical, which is, which it can hinder you in some ways, but also open up your mind to learning other various kinds of comp sci. So like when I, when I hit the, um, when I hit the career fields, I, uh, you know, I felt like there was like a lot of applications I didn't know, but I, you know, I definitely had like the theory behind it to learn them quickly. When you say theory, does that mean that there's like a type of um, logic behind the coded language? I, I was wondering if you could maybe describe what theory means as it applies to computer science. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and sorry for the, the noise in the background. That's uh, my Slack window. But <laughs> yeah, so for uh, for theory. Yeah, yeah. So there would be like the application, which is just learning straight up code. You know, I think a lot of people have dabbled at least in HTML. So you under there's an you can understand that. And then there's a theory which would be like, for example, um, what is the best way to sort a list? Like, do you, do you go down and look at every single number and immediately place it, you know, to the to the front as soon as you find the, the lowest one? Or do you go from both ends and then work your way inwards? 
you know, there's just like, like the, yeah, basically the logic behind approaching a problem or even like with my, my current job, I, uh, I work with data. I'm a biz ops engineer, which is basically like a data scientist combined with a software engineer. And one of the theories that my team is currently trying to figure out is like, when it comes to data, should we, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Should, should we load all the data into the da- uh, the database first and then format it and make it pretty basically, or should we format it first and then load it in because you lose information during that process and it's just you know trying to figure out the the optimal way to go about things. I mean, do you ever really lose data uh, when you would have to make that decision uh, in in that that kind of uh, process that you just described? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Depending on the programs that you work with. So, for example, I work with Zoom quite a lot and you can use the Zoom API, which is like an API is like a, like a, a program which allows you to interact with the Zoom program program that allows you to interact with the program. So I'm not making much sense, <laughs> but basically it's like, like zoom only retains certain data for maybe like three months. So then if I'm trying to find out which webinar I attended four months ago, I can't find it. They won't have that information. So you got to make sure you grab all the data you need or else zoom is going to dump it and then it's, and then it's gone and then you're screwed. So were there uh, a type of like uh, internship? I did. You did say that you during your time at Syracuse that you went to a, a, a university in Korea. How did you How did you make the decision to make the leap uh, for that amount of time? And and what did you do there? And what was that like? <laughs> I'm actually. I want to sound so basic right now. Um, yeah, I went to Korea in 2013 because I was mad into K-pop. Uh, kind of like <laughs> it's it's getting popular now. I just want to say I was into it before it was cool. Okay, just throwing that out there. Um, that was my main motivation. Yeah, but I did I did some computer science courses when I was there. Obviously, I had to to graduate in time, and um, I didn't do really any comp sci extracurriculars when I was there. I think that year for me was mainly like a cultural immersion. So when you say cultural immersion, um, I mean, there's so much to kind of even unpack with that. Um, what was your learning curve for the actual language and 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 how much K-pop did you really get to enjoy while you were there? Oh, I got to enjoy quite a lot. I got to go to some concerts and even I remember uh, there's this one band called To Anyone and they were really, really big back in the day. And the university I was at, Korea University, they were hosting a free to any one concert just you know just for the hell of it and uh you know you can't find that couldn't find that in america but um the the learning curve definitely i'd say like there's a different teaching style in korea i think people are encouraged to be more independent um i i felt like i was kind of bothering the teachers and like the tas when i went to go ask questions it was you know it was very much kind of do-it-yourself attitude it was very much kind of every man for themselves did that somehow maybe give you a, a different type of maybe learning muscle that you, maybe you didn't have in the United States? I mean, did you find that to be uh, ultimately helpful to your kind of academic uh, uh, approach coming back to the States? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it helped me in that, like, sometimes I would have been afraid to ask questions. And then there would be points in time there where I just I realized like I absolutely couldn't understand something. And so I would just, you know, I just toughen up and I'd go and I'd ask the TA and I'd ask the professor and they would, uh, you know, I could tell that they were a bit annoyed with me, but 
that just made me more brazen to be like, hey, look, I I know that this is how things are done here, but like I'm I'm really struggling. Can you help me? It actually gave me more courage to ask more questions once I came back because I had to step outside of my comfort zone in that way. What were some of the other things that you really enjoyed uh, in your time in Korea? Did you how much did you get to see of South Korea? Did you have any other uh, trips uh, while you were there? Oh yeah, I got to. You know, it's so funny. I went to Japan on Christmas Day because Christmas in Korea is like Valentine's Day on steroids. It's just, <laughs> it's like legit, legitimately, it's meant, to, it's seen as like a couple's holiday. So if you're single, it's just like a real sad day. And I was single at the time. So my friend and I went, took a flight to Japan on Christmas day. Cause you know, we didn't want to see all that ooey gooey love stuff around us. Um, and I was able, I also was able to go to China for three days in the February of the time I was there. And um, yeah, I also, I made a group of friends. I joined um, this club called English Club, and it was actually meant for people to practice their English. And obviously my English is, is fine, but I was like, oh, this would be a great way to, you know, to find Korean friends or they'd want to hang out with me because I could help them practice their English. And I actually, I stayed good friends with those guys still to this day. Like I went back to Korea in 2018 and um, I brought my Irish boyfriend with me and he got to he got to meet all my old friends and uh that was that was really interesting seeing an irish because i think talking about comedy a little bit korean sense the korean sense of humor is very different from the irish sense of humor and like i think comedy is very it does kind of depend on where you're located and so seeing an irish person make a joke to korean people and then try to make a joke back to him and just that little culture clash was very interesting (laughs) You come back to the United States, mm-hmm. and then and, and you finish up at Syracuse. Uh, where do you go after uh, graduation at Syracuse? I had a small internship in Texas the summer of 2016, just for three months. I was working at GM Financial as an IT intern, and then after that internship, I went to I went straight to Ireland. I went to Dublin to University College Dublin. What was the impetus to say I'm leaving? the States and going to Ireland. I mean, that seems like of, of all you've, you've been to Korea, mm-hmm. then it's Ireland. What was, uh, what were the various different, uh, fires that made you want to, uh, to do that? To be honest, you know, I really loved Korea and I would have loved to have gone there for my masters, but I just, I think that the style of teaching, um, would have been extremely difficult for me to have done a master's degree over there. So even though like my heart really wanted to go there, I'm like, no, I think, I need a bit more of a, a Western approach to teaching. And so I looked at Europe and I really, at this point, after I finished my, my four years of comp sci, I really wanted to get into the space industry. I, I just, I really wanted to work for NASA or ESA or someone like that. And I was looking at European programs that would accept me with a comp sci degree. And, and, you know, cause usually you would need like at least a physics degree or, um, an aerospace engineering degree. And so I got, I applied to as many schools as would accept me with my credentials. And I got into two, I got into University College Dublin. And then I also got into the, I think it's called the Space University. Um, it's in France, no, the International Space University. Yeah, yeah, I got into there, but that that one was less science approached and there it seemed to have more social-based classes and I really wanted a more science education so I ended up going to UCD at the end of the day. So what was it like at UCD? So you I mean so that you would have a, a standard 
uh, graduate experience had you continued on the United States? Uh, but, but I mean, from what you can tell, was there something uniquely different about the approach uh, at, at the uh, at the international level? Um, I would say, let's see, how do I, I think, I funny enough, I actually had a harder time in Ireland adjusting than I did in Korea. I think Korea was quite easy for me to adjust. And I think maybe the reason for that is because I went to Korea fully prepared, like everyone over there is going to speak a completely different language than me. The culture is very different than American culture. So I fully braced myself. And then I came to Ireland, not really bracing myself in the same way. I'm like, oh, they all speak English. Like, you know, like loads of Irish Americans. I've had a huge influence on American culture. Like it'll be, it'll be fine. And I didn't brace myself properly enough. And um, like, I think, for example, I think university culture in America, it's very strong. Like as soon as I went to Syracuse, it's like, everyone's like, hey, we're not from here. It's easy to make friends. Let's all go and get a bite to eat after class, right? Because we're all new here. But in Ireland, it's such a small country that a lot of people are still friends with like the people they grew up with. Like they have the same circle of friends that they had from like when they were 10 years old, because it's so easy to keep in contact with everyone when the the farthest ends of the country are only like a four hour drive from each other. And so it was extremely difficult actually for me to make friends because I try to hang out with people and they'd be like, oh, I already, you know, my, my family's doing this this weekend. My, um, I'm hanging out with this group of friends. It's, it was really hard to, to find a group. So when did you finally get a sense that you had that kind of comfort or acclimation? I would say it took me about a year and a half in, and I think that the comedy circuit really helped me feel that way. Like most of the friends I have now are from the Dublin comedy scene. And I, I met my boyfriend about a year into um, into my time here in Ireland. And so that, that obviously certainly helped make me feel less lonely, uh, having, a, having a steady partner. But um, yeah, I think if you just stick around long enough, also people will, you know, they'll, they'll be more inclined to hang out with you. Because I also think that there's this attitude when Americans come over here, there a lot of Irish people are like, oh, they're just going to go back to America. No point in uh, you know, no, no point in getting too yeah, close investing to in the relationship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think, but then, so once people saw that I was staying, then they were more inclined to, uh, to get closer to me. Oh, that's interesting. Now I'm, I can't wait to start talking about your comedy, but I have yeah. a few more, uh, engineering, uh, questions. Oh uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, or, uh, with coding, you know, so what do you do? So, uh, oh, so, so at, with this, you did some work with the solar physics research. I mean, that's that's really unique. Can you describe like how what your coding uh, job was or your your research was with that? Yeah, of course. So the great thing about CompSci is that you can use it for basically any kind of field you want to get into. Like I mentioned, it was a bit tricky for me to you know, find a master's degree that would accept me with just my comp sci degree, but it wasn't impossible. There's a, you know, there's a lot of, um, like, a, I don't know, if you studied biology, it'd be much more difficult to, to transfer over, right? Like comp sci, you can do, you can go, I've known people who went to law school afterwards. I even knew people who went to creative writing. Um, it's very flexible. So when I was looking for um, a research project to do, I was contacted by this guy named Peter Gallagher from, he's, works in the Trinity astrophysics department. And he was like, Hey, I'm looking for a coder to help me out with this solar research project I'm doing. And so basically my, 
my thesis, they, they basically had a, um, they had a theory over there in the Trinity astrophysics department that this one paper, which had analyzed the velocities of coronal mass ejections. So we all know what a solar flare is, right? A solar flare is like a burst of light from the sun, but a coronal mass ejection is not just the light, but it's the matter. It's like, it's like the sun basically spitting plasma out, right? So the solar flare is just the light, but the CME is shortened. It is like the physical matter of it. And CMEs are actually, they can be quite dangerous. I think there was one CME, which managed to um, hit the earth and it knocked out all of the, what was it? Like the, the, the weather, the, no, the heat generators in Canada. Um, wow. So anyway, yeah, how long ago was that? Do you remember when that was? I seem to remember that. I can't. Rem- I can't remember. It's been such a long yeah. time since I was reading my my thesis. Actually, as soon as I was done with it, I was like, "This was such a headache. I don't want to look at it again." So, <laughs> um, but yeah. So my so they they were trying to contradict this paper, which was stating that the that coronal mass ejections move at a velocity that like oscillates. So like, you know, speeds up and slows down and speeds up that slows down. They were like, no, we don't think that that's how CMEs move. We think it's more of like a quadratic velocity, you know, like slowly increasing. So it was my job to, to mine the data that uh, NASA had collected from like the past like 20 years of CMEs and to plot them and to, you know, find the best fitting, uh, the best fitting line, um, I think Mr. Mr. Hayes would be so proud of me. Um, and anyways, and so but I, so I did that. And actually, it's funny because then it turned, I proved that paper correct. I was like, oh, look, Professor Gallagher, sorry. Uh, I know you wanted me to disprove this paper, but I just proved them even more right. And he was like, oh, OK, well, thanks. So, yeah. So would you say that the data was was the data principally pulled from NASA? And, and I'm just curious as well. Do you have any idea how they were able to track the CME? Like, you know, was there some type of way that they could see it once it left the sun and then be able to like, I'm just, I'm fascinated on how they were able to even track it. I forgot. I forgot exactly how they gather that data. I think it's um, because when it comes to, to plasma, it's, like like plasma rays from the sun. It's not like the earth is actually getting hit with like some gooey plasma, you know, it's, it's more like radiation that we pick up. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it'd just be like a radiation detector. Not, I can't remember exactly where NASA had these, but you can add, there's, this is like public information. You can Google NASA CME data and it's, it's completely public and you can find it and you can find records from decades. I think that that must've been pretty gratifying you know to say like here this is what science should do right we have a hypothesis this guy had an idea but the data with great you know diligence was able to rule out that that was just not the scenario so that science gets better when you test it you know that must have been so gratifying to see you know that that was able to get to the conclusion in a, in a proper way using the methods that you had so that must have been so cool oh yeah 100 percent. it was it was really it was really cool to just to to create something and, and to see, I don't know, the kind of like the real world impact on it. But it was, uh, I did feel a little bad that I, I basically told uh, Professor Gallagher that like, no, your theory was wrong. I'm actually <laughs> proving this guy right even harder. So yeah. <laughs> uh, how did he take the news? Actually, to me, he didn't really care. To, he's such a busy guy that he actually forgot he hired me halfway through my internship. <laughs> I, I, 
went to go talk to him and he was like, Oh, hello. What's your name? Where are you working? And I'm like, I work for you, dude. Um, <laughs> he's like, Oh, right. Okay. So <laughs> that's great. So, how, so then what's interesting is that you then, you know, you said this before is that, uh, comp sci, you know, you went from, you know, tracking, you know, uh, the CMEs and now you're working as biz ops, you know, so that really you're showing just how much an incredible diverse range of where a comp sci degree and wh- where, what you can do with that. You could explain what biz ops is um, and, and what you do with that at Mural. Yeah, absolutely. So biz ops is, um, it is like half data science, half software engineering, and it's short for business operations. And basically what I do is like the business side of Mural will reach out to me. So like recently they contacted me, they're like, Hey, Betsy, we need to know all the information of all the attendees of a webinar as soon as that webinar ends for every single webinar mural hosts, which is, which is a lot, just, you know, automated process. And there could be hundreds of people in these, in these meetings. Right. So it's my job to go grab that data and to write code that automates it and then dumps that data in a presentable way for business users to read and you know for, for for them to be able to understand for non-tech people to be able to read and access that data so just really quick what what is mural uh i mean i i've used it before i've been in a conference where we used it it's super cool i mean i, I really liked using it um, but if you could maybe describe what that application is oh yeah absolutely so mural is like just uh it's like a whiteboard online. I know that doesn't sound like much, but you can do so much with it. It's really, it's a great presentation tool. It's a great tool to help people organize ideas. And it really exploded after COVID when there were so many people working from home. Like I think the company more than doubled in its size. And I was actually, I was actually hired during COVID because my previous job was in aviation, which did not do so well during COVID. Uh, no one was flying. So <laughs> You know, that's, that's what, that's what made me change, change careers. But yeah, it's just a, it's a great collaboration tool. So it's uh, curious, maybe hopefully this is not too intrusive in terms of being proprietary, but like what would be the type of um, data that is most important for those people to see is this something that goes to i mean obviously there would be like a user interface are they getting dropped from the uh from the app and you know those type of bugs that are there but are there is there something that's a a demographic information that you're looking for or what are the various things that people explore uh or get frustrated by like what are the type of things that they uh that are the most actionable bits of data that you trap that you um that you see that uh, those and what they're looking for what are those types of things yeah, so like basically data to help widen our customer base. So recently, like another project I've been working on is with Salesforce. So some of the sales people reached out and yeah, they, they were like, we need to update some of the data that we have for our leads in Salesforce. And a lot of that data will include, you know, uh, yeah, first name, last name, email, but also the industry that that person is in, their specific job title, their country, uh, state and city. And then, you know, and then they look at those each on individual, you know, on different levels. Yeah. For country and state and city. And, um, yeah, just, I think just that kind of information to try to better improve and out find more customers. I I'd kind of mentioned this question before, uh, we started recording here, but like, uh, you know, 
coding is you're making something even though it's you know maybe in some ways a bunch of zeros and ones that uh, would be recognized but you are you're making something that has a an operation and a function in such a way i was wondering like if you were to meta, you know somehow make a metaphor to art which one of the arts do you think coding is similar as you approach it? I mean, like, is it like sculpting? Is it like painting or ceramic? Like what, what do you, when you're, when you're creating something in code, how do you approach it? That's real interesting. So let me think, cause I think at first, when you said that at first I would think maybe sculpting, but, and then sculpting can also be interpretive. Like you could, you could make an imperfect sculpture of like of a human being that doesn't look exactly like a human being and be like, Oh, that's accepted. But for coding, you know, there is such a thing as a clean code, right? Like uh, making sure you don't leave unnecessary comments everywhere and make sure you remove all of the unnecessary logging statements, um, making sure that everything runs in a time efficient manner. So it's hard. I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's, I'd, I'd say it's a lot like, uh, like inventing, like a machine, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can really, because um, yeah, there is definitely like a right way to code, and I think yeah. like I think the right way to code is like the most well, efficient you can be is the best. Yeah, well, actually, that kind of brings because as you were describing that, it kind of made me think of another question. With that, it was like, it, are there any, like when do you know if you're looking at the the coding of other people? Is there a time where you're like, oh, that's that's beautiful, you know, like you like where you see that, or and are there other times you're like, I wouldn't have done that. Like, is that like, do you have that eye to be able like when you're on some other web page or, or some other application where you can see like, wow, this person or this team had great talent, or there are other times where you're like, kind of like, ugh, no, not good. Oh, hundred percent. I think like when I was in my master's degree and I was the only person in my course who had a comp sci degree. And now, of course, they all had physics undergrads. And so they all, you know, they all whooped me when it came to doing physics equations, right? Like it took me twice the amount of time that it took them. But I would look at their code and the things that would stand out to me would be like not naming their functions properly. Like you want to name your function to show what it does so it's easy to read, you know? So it would be, you know, like square underscore X. So you're like, okay, so I'm going to put X into this function and squares it like pretty simple enough. And they would just name it like function one, function two. Uh, they, you know, they, they wouldn't name things correctly. They, yeah, you know, did unnecessary uh, mathematical equations or they, they wouldn't remove code that they were no longer using and just kind of, yeah. So yeah, I definitely had that moment in my <laughs> master's degree. Yeah. So, now let's let's make the the switch here to like the other you know side of you. You had mentioned before that you had fallen into kind of like the comedy scene. So when when did when did that curiosity begin? Because I mean, at some point there's got to be like, oh, I really like watching stand up, and then you're like, maybe I I have some clever observations, and then you know, how do you get the bravery to say, all right, I'm going to go to open mic and see what happens? Like, what what's the can you? How did that uh, whole process begin for you? Oh yeah. I, you know, I could talk about comedy all day. So I, I'm kind of glad we switched <laughs> up to it because that's my passion. Yeah. That's, that's what I, that's what I love to do. And I would do that full time if I could, you know, if I got paid enough for it. Um, but basically, yeah, I, I started doing comedy. Uh, I took the deep, the first dive into it in 2017. I'd wanted to do it ever since I was in undergrad, since my first year in college. And I was just like, Oh, I don't have enough time. I'm going to wait until I'm done with my education. 
And then finally in 2017, I was done. And I just kind of looked at myself like, I don't really have any more excuses to put this off. Um, I could have definitely started it in my undergrad, but yeah, I think I was just looking for an excuse to put it off. And I took the first step into it by taking a comedy course at the, the Gaiety Theater um, over here in Dublin. And I would say like when you take a comedy course, you don't really learn how to be funny. It's it's more of like a way to get your feet warm with it's a way to practice writing jokes with other people who are new. So everyone is very nice and supportive of each other. And then you also have your first stand up performance and you invite everyone in the class only invites their friends and families. So it's not not any outsiders. And so everyone in the audience is very nice because they understand that it's your first time doing comedy. And then I think once you take that first step, once you get on stage for the first time, it's it's smooth sailing from there. Uh, it just gets easier. So, so what was your um, what was your first uh, set like? I think my first set, my first set was pretty good, and I still use some of the jokes I came up with then, and but it's and better because you. I think a lot of times, like there's so much evolution when it comes to a joke. It's not that you just write it and then you're done with it. You write the joke, you practice it a few times. You, you see the audience's reactions and you decide to drop something and then maybe add something on, or maybe you switch the order at which you tell it because word order is, is very important. Um, and then maybe sometimes you're on stage and something hits you spur the moment while you're on stage. And then that becomes, and then you write it down later and that becomes a permanent part of that joke. I mean, this is, I, I'm a, I, I teach AP language, so I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. And every year I, I, I keep on thinking, I got to do a comedy unit. I just got to do it oh, because absolutely. it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate act of persuasion. Right. And so, which is like you, someone's not laughing and then you have to bring them to laughing over an idea that you're putting in their head and there, it has structure, it's got syntax. And as you said, word choice, right? I mean, it's the, it threads the needle on all these things that I love about rhetoric uh and all of that where walk me through the birth the genesis of a joke like so uh how does a how do you then when you put on you take off your coder uh and comp sci glasses and then you put on your comedian what are the things that you look at to find inspiration i think what i do there's inspiration that hits us every single day we just don't realize it it's like you'll be walking to the bus and you might be listening to a podcast and then they say something and you think of a funny little joke in your brain, but then you immediately lose it. And then you just forget about it because that's, you know, it's, it's almost like when you like writing down your dreams, they say you have to write down your dreams, like as soon as you wake up or else you forget about them. And I would say a joke is very much the same. So when you're first starting out in comedy, uh, you have to get into that habit of just keeping a notebook with you and just immediately writing down any little funny thought that comes to mind. I, I still carry a notebook. Every comedian I know carries around a notebook with them or at least like a note-taking app where you immediately jot that down. And then when you have time and you're, you go home and you sit down and you look at what you wrote and then you talk, I, I talk out loud. It's just so lame. I have a Pikachu doll that I talk to and I'm like, so Pikachu, listen up. Like, and I tell, I, I talk, tell the story to Pikachu and especially like walking around helps the blood flow and helps me just flesh out the idea more and more. And so then after I talk about it and I'm recording it, then I start typing it as well. And then that gets more ideas. I don't know. There's something about like talking generates some ideas and then writing generates a different set of ideas. I don't know what 
there there is there is like structure to jokes how did you deal with your first heckler if you ever had one oh yeah yeah so um my first heckler was this really drunk girl in like her early 20s and i was doing some dark jokes and my jokes are very tongue-in-cheek where you know it, it it's like i i pretend like i'm taking one side but you can tell from my sarcasm that i don't actually mean what i'm saying you know kind of like stephen colbert like when he did the colbert report um i have that little bit of a character and everyone else in the audience knew that i was doing a character she did not and she was like oh you can't say that yada and her friends were like telling her hey you know shut shush she doesn't mean it um she's just doing a character and the first time I was frozen and I didn't address her and I just, cause I, I didn't know what to do, but now, now what I do, oh, I hope my computer doesn't fall asleep. Sorry. Okay. Now what I do is a lot of comedians will have pocket insults. Um, so it's, and it kind of does go a lot based on like what the audience looks like. So this girl, because she was a young girl in her twenties, I think now what I would do for that, for someone like that is I would be like, Hey, I don't know what you Irish people call someone like that, but in America, that's what we call a basic B, um, you know, stuff like that. And then that usually gets yeah. them. Um, or if there's, you know, like a, like an old man, then you have a particular insult. Yeah. So you do kind of have like pocket insults based on the demographic. Um, I actually, pocket insults. yeah, you do. Yeah. How much would you say is your humor formative because of your, t- your, lens as an American being in the Irish comedy scene. Like I was wondering how those there's like a symbiosis of like your ethos as an American, a young female American in an Irish. I was wondering how all those things kind of like intersect together to inform your approach to comedy. Yeah. So there is, I mean, I think there, there's definitely a big overlap between Irish comedy and American comedy, especially because American comedians are the most famous comedians in the world. So if you ask an Irish person who their favorite comedian is, there's a 50% chance that they'll name an American comedian. Um, And then maybe like a 30% chance they'll name a a British one. And then like a 20% chance they'll name an Irish one. Uh, But there are definitely some comedians on the scene, which are very, very Irish in their sense of humor and that like they get, they're very popular. They get loads of gigs. Everyone loves them. But then like myself and a few other American comedians, like wait, we, you, you can like objectively see that someone is good, but not personally find them funny. And, that, and then I think we're kind of like that. Like I, like, I don't understand this joke he made about cows. Like that's not relevant to me. I didn't grow up with a cow in my backyard. So, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then I think also it is, it is kind of, easy for me sometimes to, to make fun of myself for being an American because, and I've had people tell me this, it's like Americans, we are the most, um, you know, our media is the most consumed in the whole world. And it's, so it's much easier to make fun of us than it is to make fun of basically any other country. And so when I go on stage and I make jokes about Americans, people in the audience, they tell me they're like, Oh, like this gives us permission to laugh at, Americans because you're giving us the okay to so who do you study as like this person is on top of their craft as a stand-up comedian but are you're still able to kind of develop your own unique persona uh, on stage as well I was wondering like how you kind of uh you know are able to kind of study the greats but then also develop your own style uh, as well and how do you maybe navigate that 
Yeah, so I really like Ricky Gervais because he has that really dark, edgy humor, but I feel like he's always punching down. Like, I think when he hosts the Oscars, when he when he hosts the Oscars, you know, he's, he's basically making fun of the Hollywood elites, but that's what they are. They're Hollywood elites. He's not making fun of, like, poor people or anything. Um, and I know a lot of people still don't like his sense of humor, but... I think every, I think most people can. At least agree. he's punching up, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly. And so I kind of I, I look at that, especially since most of my jokes are very dark, and I don't even realize that they're dark sometimes. I just come up with a joke, and people are like, "Oh my god, Betsy, that's dark," and I'm like, "Really? I didn't even." So I always just try to keep that in mind, like that. I I firmly believe you can joke about anything and everything, but it always depends on the angle. It absolutely one hundred percent depends on. The, the angle that you're coming at it. Like you can't make like a joke about something horrible and atrocious and painful to people. If you're not, if, 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 if you're just doing it for the sake of being edgy, like you gotta, yeah, you gotta come at it from the good side. So how often are you on stage? Like, I mean, obviously things probably really ramped down uh, during COVID, but now that things are kind of coming back to it, how often are you on stage? I think uh, I go on stage about an average of three nights a week. Um, and then there's, there's also other stuff in comedy as well. Like there's podcast recordings like this weekend, I was out in, uh, in Mayo County Mayo recording for those conspiracy guys. I just want to say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. That's just, that's just the name of the podcast. Yeah. They, they talk about like true crime and stuff as well. I was actually there to talk about the Salem witch trials. Um, ha, we we just finished, uh, the crucible last week. Oh, uh, cool. that, so that was, yeah, I love it. Love it. Oh, but yeah, so there's a lot of podcast recording. Um, let's see, there's also like competitions. I did a I did a roast battle last week and won. So Jack McKenna, if you're listening to this, I beat you. Um, you already know that. <laughs> What's the format of a roast <laughs> battle? Like how does it, like how's that different than like just uh, just being up on stage? It's it's um, basically the the host will let the two comedians go on, and you know you'll you'll make you have a joke about a particular topic and you know, you do your set and then they do theirs and you just go back and forth. And basically uh, whoever runs out, once you run out of jokes and you say like, okay, that's my bit. And then the other person says their, their last one joke. And then the judge, there's judges there who decide who the winner is. And if there's a tie between the judges and the audience will decide. Do you exhaust your pocket insults there or do you have to kind of, or does that kind of get, sussed out by the audience like yeah that, that seems like that would be a pocket insult versus something that's fresh and right there like how, how what's the what's the the dynamic there so like like when i was roasting uh when i was roasting jack because we we're not like famous comedians at all and jack mckenna the comedian i roasted he's actually a friend of mine and so i know a lot of personal things about him that i can roast but because the audience doesn't know who he is they're just like there's this, this blonde guy named jack I have to set up a little bit of a background. So one of the jokes I made about Jack is that he's very cheap. He's like, and so I'll say that like Jack is one of the cheapest people I know. He's the only person I know whose wallet actually creaks when it opens. Uh, so you got to give a little bit of like an intro there and then be like, oh, Jack is really into fashion. You can see that by looking at him. And, um, you know, so you got to gotta give it. But I think that like, the pocket insults, because that's, that's like very generic. You could be like, oh, you know, uh, sorority girl, this gets this insult. Old man gets that insult. But this is like for a very specific person. And you got to make sure that the whole audience knows the character of who you're roasting. 
Ah, that's that's so neat. Um, so we we mentioned like who are your your favorites, you know, who you you study and all that. Um, what what would be the the stand up dream uh, for you? Like what like obviously you, you said like you would you would leave coding for stand up uh, <laughs> if if the opportunity. What would be like? Uh, what would be the next step where like this would be like ideal? Oh, let me think. Because in Ireland, it's very hard to make to become a full time comedian. I know people who do it, and it is a bit rough. And the if you really want to like have a much higher chance of success as a comedian, you'd have to move to London. I don't really want to move to London though, especially after Brexit. And my my boyfriend, he's Irish. He's from Waterford. We've been dating for like four and a half years, and I'm very close to his family. And family is something that's very important to me. But so I think for me, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be, it's hard for me to, if I could, if I could like work part-time and then like run a comedy club part-time, I actually, I do, I do run um, a comedy club. I call it Betsy from HR's mandatory fun time. And I, <laughs> so I pretend to be like this real serious HR lady. Like I'm a real stickler and I just like, I threaten people. I'm like, if you don't come to this uh, meeting and then you're, parking space will be confiscated and, you know, make threats that I can't make. Uh, just, just that kind of thing. If I could do that, like, you know, I'd do that like once a month, but if I could do that more than once a month, if I could do that, like four days a week or something, and then, you know, make a bit of profit from the tickets, then that'd be great. That'd be the dream. What is it about the energy of a live audience that is so amazing? I mean, cause I mean, cause obviously like, I'm sure it's fun to, you know, to kind of have jokes on a podcast and, and all this stuff, but it's not the same as being in front of a live audience and have them bring them from not laughing to laughing and, and all of that. I mean, the joke that you told at the rule of three, that, that was hilarious. I mean, that was really funny. And, but I, I can imagine how more just oxygen that brings to you when that's multiplied by 50 people in room or more. I was wondering if how you can maybe capture like the reciprocal energy that happens with a live audience. Yeah. It, it's, it's like this rush of adrenaline. It's just, I don't, it's euphoric. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a huge confidence booster. I definitely say like my, my self-confidence has boosted immensely since I started doing comedy and not just that, but like your ability to navigate certain situations. Cause now, because I'm like, I, I practice so much time just trying to read a room and you're reading a room and it's, you know, loads of people. And you have like one group over here that has a different vibe from that group over there. And you got to find a way to make them both happy. And, um, and so now when I'm in social situations that, uh, that certainly helps. So I'm kind of, I'm sorry, kind of diverging from the question there, but it's just, uh, it's, it's euphoric. That's not the best way I can. I can describe it. Yeah, I just I, I I whenever I see a live performance, if it's stand up or a musician uh, or uh, even like a a play, I just have I don't think I have more envy than anyone uh, than the people that are on stage and they're getting that type of immediate um, gratification of knowing how much joy they bring to people. It's just it's it's amazing. Wow. Uh, Betsy, you've been so generous with your time and our time difference, how many hours away you are from me right now with all this. And I always like asking uh, the guest uh, at the end of the interview, if you have any tips for success uh, that you would leave current Wildcats. Hmm. I would say 
you don't have to find what your passion is right now. It's okay if you don't know what exactly it is you want to do yet. You can take time to think about it and don't feel pressured to, to, to rush into anything or to find that passion. That would just be the best advice I could give. And maybe one more follow-up question on top of that, which is you really had such confidence to blaze a trail, you know, to, you left West Chicago to Syracuse and then you go off to um, South Korea and then you, you, then you, you find your way into Ireland. You know, what is it about your um, personality or your confidence that allowed you to be so independent and, and do those things? Yeah, it's kind of funny you say that because I used to be, I used to be quite shy. I was I was extremely shy. There's probably most people most people from my class probably don't remember me at all. Um, and I think, and that, and that was because I was very um, afraid of what people would think of me. And then I reached a point where I was just so, I think I was just kind of fed up being that way. I'm like people are going to think of me, however they think of me, no matter what. Um, I might as well just say and do what I want. And so I just I just did that. I just started doing what I wanted. And I think, I think um, like when I tra- traveling though, traveling, it's, it's a lot easier nowadays with like with technology. Cause you know, you have Google maps. And so like, I would go to, I go to new cities like by myself a lot, but I'm like, Hey, look, as long as I have an internet connection, I'm never going to really get lost. Right. Um, Betsy, this has been so great. And thank you so much. Uh, I, I, this, I can't wait for everyone to hear this. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at We Go Places Podcast or on Twitter at We Go Places. 